human first, everything else after. Welcome to What's Betwixt Us, stories of working while human. I'm Lissa Mandel. What's Betwixt Us is a series of conversations about empathy at work, at work. It's about diving into the messiness and the specificity of being human on the job, any job, and how empathy isn't just a nice-sounding buzzword for company PR. It's a rebellious act of remembering that we're human first, everything else after. Today on What's Betwixt Us, I chat with my dear friend, Rabbi Jessica Marshall. Though she began her career in a traditional manner with a synagogue and a congregation, she likes to, in her words, explode paradigms with heart-centered connection. Her work now is focused on building creative, diverse, and personal offerings for life cycle rituals, retreats, women's gatherings, and spiritual coaching. We talk about the power of sitting with and witnessing people in pain, exactly as they are, seeing everything as an invitation to the sacred, and the wisdom in our hearts that's as knowledgeable as what's in our brains. Please enjoy episode 22, Empathy in Ritual, with Rabbi Jessica Marshall. I am so delighted and my heart is so warm to welcome one of my dear friends to the What's Betwixt Us podcast today, Rabbi Jessica K. Marshall. And Rabbi Marshall, uh, I came to know her actually through a retreat in Joshua Tree. And I will say that when you think of Rabbi, somebody like Rabbi Marshall is maybe not what comes to mind. And she is very spiritual and very open and uh, involves herself in different kinds of rituals and retreats and spiritual coaching that maybe fall outside what you think of as a traditional rabbi. So Rabbi Marshall, um, I, will allow your, I will allow you to introduce yourself and say a little bit maybe about, first of all, uh, what led you to being a rabbi. Lisa Mandel, it is such a friggin' pleasure to be here. What a treat. What a treat. Yeah, and um, nothing I love more than exploding paradigms and you know, blowing up structures that don't serve anyone. So <laughs> it's a really, really a treat to, to be together. Okay, what led me to become a rabbi? It's a great story, actually. And it has a few parts. So I grew up in, in a Jewish home that was certainly Jewishly connected. We would sit down for um, Shabbat dinner every Friday night, the the Sabbath meal that begins Shabbat. And we would go to services like, you know, once a month-ish. Mostly I just liked like dressing up and, you know, all the snacks that came afterwards. (laughs) But I didn't know that like, Shabbat was on Saturday. Also, I grew up in a reform home. So we were not observing Jewish law in any sort of strict way. We had pork on Thanksgiving because my dad doesn't like turkey, you know, and I had no idea like that pork wasn't kosher or even what kashrut Jewish dietary laws were. Um, But that was kind of the foundation. And then when I was a junior in college, my little sister found out about this free trip to Israel with an Orthodox organization. And I had had no exposure to Orthodox anything before. And I went with her and I loved it. 
I loved the sense of meaning that these Jews infused into every single thing that they did. Like every act was sacred. And I love the sense of community, even though they were constantly in each other's business. Like it just felt so, everyone felt like so held, you know, in terms of energetically holding each other and being there for each other. So that was this, this uh, like 10 day trip. And then I came home and I tried keeping Shabbat the way that they did, like a strict kind of more orthodox observance. And I was bored out of my mind because <laughs> I had no community. And like Judaism is very much about practicing in community. So if you're going to take a real day of rest off, it's a little bit lonely to do it by yourself. Mm-hmm. But that was kind of part one. And then fast forward to the following summer, I was in Washington, D.C., at a college internship. And it was my first Friday night there. And I knew that I wanted to go to Shabbat services like that just felt good to me. And so I during work, I found a phone book, remember phone books from way back. (laughs) (laughs) And I found a synagogue in the phone book. And I got out of work a little bit early, ran home changed, was I remember so vividly, I was running down the street after the bus, like searching for coins in my purse so that I could pay, you know, the bus fare. And I got to the synagogue just in the nick of time and everyone was standing in the foyer and the cantor, who's the person that plays uh, music at services was playing guitar. She was playing this Shabbat song called L'cha Dodi, which is all about um, welcoming Shabbat and really a sacred union between different sides of ourselves and, and each other as we welcome Shabbat. And I walked in the front door and I was like, oh, there's no place I'd rather be. It felt so good and so right. And I want to pause here and just tell the listeners that as you said that, you put your hand on your heart, like you were having this real heart opening experience. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, very much so, especially because I was, I was a 21 year old in a new city. And so to be stepping into this place that felt familiar, I just, yeah, it felt like an embrace. And they did the, there's a part of the service called the Oneg, which um, means joy, like the actual translation, but really is all the snacks. (laughs) And I hadn't had time to have dinner yet. And so I got all these delicious treats as someone who's very like snack oriented, (laughs) especially important. I still remember they had these veggie pinwheels that were super delicious. So I felt like really nourished and fed. And as I was walking in the front doors of the sanctuary, there was this older couple uh, who was walking in at the same time. And I said, hello. And they said, hi. And they said, oh, are you here by yourself? And I said, yeah. And they said, oh, come sit with us. And Lissa, instead of having me sit next to them, as most of us would just naturally do, they put me in between them again. I just felt like even more nestled and held. And then the rabbi did two things during this service. First, he did a baby naming. And then he blessed a couple on their 58th wedding anniversary. And this couple was still very much in love. The man was about four feet, five inches tall, like kind of hunched over with snowy white hair. And he was gingerly holding his wife's arm as they made their way up the steps to where the tours were. So the rabbi could bless them. 
And I just got all verklempt, like I got so choked up inside. And I thought to myself, what an amazing way to spend your life, like sanctifying these moments, this couple on their 58th wedding anniversary, you know, and that was kind of my, that was kind of my moment. And I went back to my rabbi from home and I kind of shared this with him. And he said, Jess, you know, you should really become a rabbi. And I said, I don't want a job that's 24 seven. And I don't want to have to deal with synagogue politics. And I don't want to have to write a sermon every week, you know, all of these excuses. And I really have been able to create a rabbinate for myself that's felt really soul aligned, where um, I'm doing creative work. And I am, I'm able to take a really inclusive approach where I'm drawing together beautiful Jewish elements alongside mysticism and mindfulness and personal growth practices and all of that. So that's kind of how I became a rabbi. And then I spent um, almost a decade kind of more in the traditional Jewish world. And then three years ago, I moved to Denver to create my dream life. And now I've, um, now I've gone rogue with my rabbinate and I do a lot of beautiful work around uh, creative life cycle rituals and women's retreats and women's circles. So yeah, I love this. I love this idea of going rogue. And it's like you've you've actually tasted all of the different kinds of Judaism like o- over the time and, and decided that um, something that I wanted to highlight that's on your website is this idea of heart centered connection, which is, you know, at the root of everything that you do. So when you talk about your rabbinate, like you are not attached particularly to one synagogue or another, you are sort of a traveling synagogue, a traveling sanctuary yourself. And you get to basically select and then shape all of these different, you know, retreats and rituals and offerings yourself based on what feels really authentic to you. And to me, that sounds like such an empathetic way of approaching your work because you're being empathetic first to yourself and to your calling and to what sounds right to you and write to your heart. So I would love to ask you, you know, since this is a podcast about empathy at work, what comes to mind in terms of how empathy has been directly involved in your practice? And you can go, you know, from any part of it that that you want. Yeah, I love that. Thanks, Lissa. And a few things kind of as you were talking. So one of the interesting unfolding that's that's come about the last few years is really this call in my heart to open my arms to more and more inclusive spiritual practices and to serve more people than just Jews. And I have to like give my colleagues mad credit. I've, I've really been embraced in, you know, both in Denver and kind of in, in, uh, amongst my, my colleagues all over the country of just like all of us making space to elevate each other's gifts and what actually lights us up because there's room for all of it, you know? So that's a big piece is like broadening beyond just serving Jews and connecting with those who feel spiritually called in different ways. So that's, that's one thing. And then, oh my goodness, what you said about heart opening. Yeah. I, I actually just heard this fact the other day. This, I heard this from um, Greg Braden, who talked about 
that um, our hearts as organs actually have brain cells in them. Like they have the, the same kind of knowing that our brain has, but they're, they're different from the brain cells and they only reside in the heart. So the heart also knows in a way that the brain can't. And the really interesting, the like really interesting thing about this is that brain, like neurological brain cells, like the ones that we have in our, in our cranium, they operate via polarity. So good, bad, success, failure, right, wrong. But the cells in our heart don't operate that way. So we're able to kind of bypass this loop that we can get into in our heads in some way about like the right way versus the wrong way to do things and actually tap into a deeper inner knowing, a base note, if you will, of deep truth. And it's really been a guide for me. Like I knew that when I was supposed to leave my beloved congregation and broaden myself spiritually, like that came from my heart and that's really guided me. So um, I just learned that fact and I thought it was so friggin' cool. And I was like, I must share this now that you've mentioned, you know, returning to our hearts. Yeah, I love that. I love that. Let's talk about rituals, life cycle rituals specifically. Right. Can I, can I just really quick share a story of empathy from work? Cause I do, it is about heart centered opening and then like we can bring it back to ritual. Is that okay? Yeah. Yes, of course. I'm sorry. I thought you were, I thought you were done. (laughs) Well, I couldn't resist sharing the heart piece because I just felt, I just felt it might be of service for some of us who sometimes get caught in like, what should I do that there's an invitation more to drop into our hearts. And that actually, I think ties nicely into to the story. So every fall, there's a set of major Jewish holidays, and they're collectively referred to as the high holidays. It's four four major holidays in a row. And it's a very intense time for rabbis. (laughs) It's like tax season for rabbis, you know, you're, you're going to make a comparison. So we deliver a bunch of sermons. And this is a story about a sermon that I gave that was the most well-received sermon that I had ever written. And I, I love writing and I take my writing seriously. So it, it was, a, it was a big deal to have it received in this way. And I had a, a tradition with my mom, who's an amazing writer that I would have her edit my sermons and I would start early on in the summer and she was, she's not into technology at all. So I would literally be printing out drafts, mailing them to California. She would be mailing them back with scribbles all over them, you know, and we'd go through this process. And my mom has big uh, mental health struggles uh, that started when I was around 14 and continue to this day. And I knew that I wanted to deliver a sermon about those who both struggle with mental health and also those who caretake. And so I wrote this sermon and I was kind of debating about whether or not I should have my mom edit it because she has a lot of shame around her struggles like many people do. Um, and I did have her edit it and it was it was a pretty powerful process. It wasn't easy because I was I felt a little bit like I was wanting to make sure that I could be honest and my voice could come out, but also that I was respecting 
her. And during the time when I, when I wrote it, she asked that I not say my mom. And she asked instead that I just say a family member and keep it more general because she didn't like necessarily want it to be public. And so I delivered this sermon and it was incredibly, incredibly uh, moving, you know, for me to speak these words. And I really talked about, I talked about mental health struggles being rooted in many traditions in our Torah and many stories in our Torah and stories about just the power of sitting with someone who is in pain and not needing to fix them or to have them be different or for us necessarily to do anything, but just the power of, of really witnessing and, and just loving someone exactly where they are. And then I talked a lot about, you know, my own journey of like a desire to distance myself from it in my twenties and guilt that I couldn't heal my mom and guilt about my own happiness and my own full life and wrestling with what it means to really love her. Like, what does that, what does that mean exactly? You know, should I try to kind of counter her negative thoughts or, or just like love her with exactly where she is what does it look like to stand by her side as she's hurting, you know, without the extremes of either absorbing all of her pain or feeling really detached? What does it look like to sit with her to witness and to allow? And I talked about all this and Lisa, I really, oh my goodness, the comments that I got from people, because it's just so common. We're all touched by it in one way or another. And it was really, really powerful. And so you know, when I think about empathy and when I think about like leading from our hearts, my, my decision to do something vulnerable and then having it received by others with so much vulnerability and hearing their stories of how it touched them and, and loved ones who were no longer with us because of their own mental health struggles. And, and all of that was just, well, it will stay with me for my whole life. So yeah, that's, um, that's one of the things that comes to mind, well, from my life as a congregational rabbi in terms of leading with my heart and then having, having my story held with so much open-heartedness by my congregants. Yeah, well, I mean, what's, I think that what's very powerful, like, the most powerful thing that you said is about you know witnessing and sitting with people while they're in pain because it is our human instinct to uh, you know, it makes us uncomfortable. We want to, yeah. we want to make it go away. We want to make yeah. it better. We want to kind of get away from it. But there's so much courage and vulnerability in sitting with somebody in pain. Obviously, with our, with our own boundaries to keep us safe. But I, I just I love that idea, and I love the story that you, um, in order to really touch people compassionately was you being completely open about, you know, your pain, the pain in your life. And even, even as a caretaker, of course, you know, the pain involved in that and that you had this whole congregation witness you. And I, I just love this idea of empathy as witnessing the other, you know, yeah. no judgment or trying to change. Yeah. Yeah. And I like, don't get me wrong. I was nervous. I was nervous to deliver this one. And, you know, I think part of it was because not everyone knew because 
well, because my mom's illness kind of prevents her from being able to travel. And so she hadn't really been to the congregation. I don't think at all yet. Uh, so yeah, it was a big deal. And, you know, I will share too, like the way, one of the beautiful ways that being a congregational rabbi shaped me is that it softened my own rigidity around really judgment of other people. I I'll say like, I'll own, I'll own that. I had that side of me. And my mom would remark, she's like, she's like, you just seem, you just seem more compassionate. And I think that was a beautiful gift that came from journeying through people's lives with them. You know, it's such a, it's really like a, a deep journey that we do together. And I think that one of the gifts of being a rabbi and in, in all of the different colors that my rabbinate has taken is really deepening into what it means to give someone the dignity of their own experience, mm. giving someone the dignity of their own experience. And that shows up, you know, not just professionally, but in my friendships and in my other family relationships and romantically, you know, in all of the spheres. And that to me is exactly what empathy is about. Yeah. You don't, uh, you don't get to choose every single person that you work with, you know, unless you're the, the CEO. And even then, and even then you probably don't. Yeah. <laughs> and it trains you to, you know, sort of uh, adapt and learn to open your heart and, um, and understand a variety of kinds of people um, around you. And so that, you know, if you had skipped that step and gone right to being, you know, your own rabbinet entrepreneur by yourself, you would have, you would have missed all of the juiciness in, you know, having to be like encountering a whole variety of people that you otherwise wouldn't have. So I think that's super valuable, super valuable. Yeah. Yeah, it was such an important step in my journey. And yeah, it, it softened me and it enabled me also, I think, here's another maybe applicable nugget for all of us is that we can tell when we're being triggered by someone or something, you know, whether we're feeling defensive or just really agitated or more resentful or whatever it is like, Ooh, this is an opportunity to work on some of my own stuff around this. Yes. Yeah. That's brilliant. And I always love that lesson. If somebody triggers something inside of us, resentment or jealousy or anger or whatever it is, it is an offering for us to look at ourselves and what inside of ourselves is unhealed to use others as a mirror for that. Yeah. Very wise. Yeah. With a lot of compassion. Um, yeah. Of course. Of course it has to be. Yeah. You can't just beat it out of you. Um, <laughs> that would be easier, wouldn't it? Okay. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. Just, just get a shovel and just like well, carve well, out all the parts. Well, that are. Yeah. So yes. Um, I want to talk about your, your various offerings that you have specifically, you know, the rituals you do weddings and baby namings, you do retreats, for, for women, you do spiritual coaching, you have all of these different offerings. And I would love to hear your thoughts on how, on how empathy comes into all of them. And it may, I mean, it, it may seem obvious to you, but, but anything that bubbles up, I think is really useful. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think it's 
some parts of it may be obvious, but it's also deeply nuanced. So I've always been drawn to ritual. And I like to think of ritual as a way to meld our everyday physical world with the spiritual. And I think too that, you know, there's so many moments that we can kind of just pass by that we have an invitation to really bless and to make sacred. And that's to me what ritual is. So it can be both for huge life occasions like a wedding, but it can also be for a moment when we step outside of our front door and we see the sun sparkling on the little ginkgo tree right in front of our apartment door and our breath catches in our throat and we have an invitation to make it sacred. And I love blessing all of it. And it's interesting. I've had a thread in my rabbinet of the power of ritual of, of stepping back to bless. I mean, if you think about the story that got me started on this fun adventure, it was the baby naming and the 58th wedding anniversary blessing, right? It was, it was those sacred rituals. So, so that's kind of been the thread that's carried me through. And yeah, I, I'm in this really beautiful uh, dance of making space for kind of more traditional Jewish practices and being in a, a rabbi in more traditional ways. And that's doing weddings and baby namings, although with a lot of creativity and, uh, and spiritual inclusivity in that, certainly officiating at interfaith weddings, but also, you know, couples who where not one of the partners is Jewish and they're bringing creativity um, and a spiritual perspective into it, whether that's through nature or through just a sense of, of oneness and mystery. So that's kind of one piece. And then I have always, always loved retreats and immersive experiences. And I even think back to my days of, of summer camp, that was, I think, like my first taste of the power of, of immersive experiences and how they can transform us and retreats that I've been on, where we just get this sacred invitation to step back and breathe into like what really matters and what lights us up and live lives that are big and joyous and affirming and feel potential filled. And I, I love participating in them and I love offering them. And so that's kind of the other piece. I lead women's circles, both through congregations and then on my own a little bit too. And, and retreats where we think about things like what is our connection to the divine? When we look back on our life, what's most important? What are the parts of our identity that we're holding on to that feel like they're not really us or they're not serving us in, in powerful ways. And we do rituals of release and rituals of welcoming in and bringing in intentionality and bringing in the cycles of the moon and her, her invitations for kind of how we dance with different life stages and then just the power of women coming together and lifting each other up and cheering each other on and also be really like friggin' real and authentic. And I think just that combination of incredible sisterhood mixed with, you know, our own internal reflection and, and intentionality, I've just found to be really powerful and people, people are 
responding beautifully to it and getting really excited. I feel the same way about immersive experiences. And I had the same kind of experience at my, my summer camp after seventh and eighth grade was less like a camp. It was more like, you know, camp for indoor kids at Wellesley College. You took classes and stayed in dorms and whatever, but the the part of it and the part of retreats that I love, and I think maybe you do too, although I'm not going to put words in your mouth, but like to bring it back to the idea of empathy, you're in this rarefied space where you have the opportunity not only to do this exploration of yourself and, you know, parts of yourself that maybe don't feel authentic or calling in parts of yourself that are more authentic, but it's doing it in the presence of other people without all of the distractions of everyday life. And so, you know, I wonder if you could speak to like the special kind of empathy that is present in things like retreats that, that, you know, you couldn't find in everyday life. Yeah. Oh, there's nothing I would love to speak to more than that. I think a few things that come in that create this really special sauce for when we participate in retreats. I think one is taking us out of our everyday routines and especially unplugging from technology so that all the pinging that is constantly bombarding us is kind of put aside. I think also retreats are often in nature and for so many of us, nature is such a powerful way to connect with, with the divine spirit, universe, you know, mystery, whatever word you like to use. And I've been thinking a lot about for me, because I'm such an outdoors person, like, what is it about nature that's so powerful? And I think that for me, at least, nature holds so many metaphors for the human experience, that when we're immersed in it, we we just see our lives reflected, you know, so the idea of periods of birth and growth and periods of decay, and periods of destruction, and the little sweet, you know, life's little sweetnesses, and, you know, different cycles, I just like, it just feels very affirming of the human experience, too. So I think nature is another piece. And then I think, you know, one of the biggest heart opening pieces is just seeing that we all struggle with the same stuff. It's just different colors of it. I mean, Lisa, you and I met on one such retreat, you know, and I just remember moments. I remember moments on this Joshua tree retreat where we met where someone else was struggling with a very different circumstance. They had, they had a, a, a deep family loss, And I didn't think that I was, you know, necessarily going to feel like a direct resonance with their experience. And then as this person was like navigating that, I was sobbing because what I realized is like my own sense of loss with my mom, you know, the mom that I had who is, is no longer, you know, kind of operating in the same way that she did when, you know, when I was a little kid before she got sick. Oh my gosh, you know, that cut, that cut to my depths. So I think just like seeing um, ourselves in each other and knowing that, you know, all of the things that we each struggle with, am I too much? Am I not enough? You know, will I ever get to where I want to be? All of like life's paradoxes is, is, is just so reflected and it, 
it feels deeply affirming, you know, to look at someone who seems like such a friggin' rock star on the outside, and then we get to know them. And we're like, Oh, yeah, we're all we're all in it. You know, we're all just walking each other home, as Ram Dass says. So that combination is really exquisite. And then having someone there to guide us through these beautiful questions that are both tender and uplifting and scary and glorious all at the same time that we wouldn't necessarily make time to do for ourselves. It's just a really beautiful container. Yeah. Yeah. That's all, that's all really, really well said. And yes, the idea of having like somebody to guide, uh, not, not only for people to hold space with each other to reveal like very, very tender truths about themselves, which doesn't happen, you know, in everyday life. But that's what makes your work so cool because you at work is most other people away from work. And so part of your work is getting to see people when they're really, really real. There's one more thing that I wanted to ask you about. Well, I mean, unless there are things that you want to offer that I haven't asked yet, but like, uh, I want to talk about uh, your, your spiritual coaching and when you are one-on-one mentoring someone any thoughts that you have about that? Yeah, absolutely. Well, this is an this is kind of a more general offering around how both how I how I like to lead and also how I love to be led. You know, when I think about the people I most admire, they simultaneously hold deep authenticity alongside deep wisdom alongside a heck of a lot of playfulness, you know, and a little bit of a few inappropriate comments or F-bombs dropped in there too. You know, like, that's what I want. And when I think of the people I most admire, you know, like Liz Gilbert and Cheryl Strayed and Rob Bell and Brene Brown, like, you know, my my, uh, tribal council, I'll say, like, that's how they're operating in the world, right? They're offering us so much so much wisdom while also showing up with a lot of authenticity. And so that's what I try to model when I work with folks one-on-one and, and give them space to honor that in themselves. Because, you know, as Walt Whitman said, we contain multitudes. And I think just, just making space for all of that is really precious. So that's kind of an overarching thing. And then I think just helping people to tap into the wisdom that's within. We, um, you know, we started like, we're coming full circle here because I was talking about the wisdom in our hearts, right? They're like, <laughs> there's a knowing, a, phys- a biological knowing in our, in our heart cells. And so just helping people to tap into that and asking them evil, even like basic questions, like what does this situation want me to know? Or what is it asking me to honor? Also kind of anthropomorphizing like different areas of our life can be really helpful. What does this creative work want to be? You know, what would feel really friggin' freeing in this situation? So I ask a lot of those. I, I do a combination of guided visualizations, journaling and writing, because we're able to tap into different a different sense of knowing when we write and then just dreaming really big together and giving people the most radical permission slips to, to blow up, 
you know, old paradigms. There we go again with me and exploding paradigms because I love it so much. Like just breaking out of the narrowness that um, and the way that we're told things have to be. And and I just want to say too that I've been on my own journey with that. Like when I decided to leave my congregation, which was a great job and I was totally beloved and I loved them. Like it was such a mutual love fest and I had a stable income and all these things. And I decided to kind of blow up my life um, and move to Denver. I got a lot of pushback from my family, you know, that I was like giving up security and stuff. And I've been on my own journey of actually, you know, honoring, okay, Jessica, what do you really want? Like, what do you want? And you get to have it. And, and, and then of course, surrounding myself with people who, who cheerlead me in that way and help me keep going when I fear other people's judgments or opinions, or that I'm going to come across as, you know, self-indulgent or whatever other kind of low vibration stories we tell ourselves. So that's, um, that's kind of the basic structure for my coaching. And I, Really, it's completely individualized to each person because we each struggle with our own special nuggets um, and then helping people to feel into what would feel like a giant heck yes to get out of this experience and how can I support you in doing that? And it's both it's both sacred witnessing and also elevating them as they, yeah. Well, that's what I was gonna say when you said before, we come full circle talking about the heart, what um, when you describe you know, what, what, what your spiritual coaching work is, it sounds like also a way of witnessing you are sitting with a person and not telling them what to do, but helping guide them to the wisdom inside of them based on what they are showing you based on what they are telling you, like you, you hold space and are a witness for their, their self-discovery. Yeah. And Lisa, it's all inside of us. Like it's all in there. It's just about like taking this giant soul breath to unfurl into what's already inside and to, and to claim that and to elevate it and to celebrate it for ourselves. And sometimes we're scared to see it because it, because it feels really powerful or because it goes against what we've been told or whatnot. But I just want to give us all the the affirmation that it's all in there. Like, like you don't need someone else to tell you how it needs to be done or what it should look like. It's really just about coming home to yourself in new ways. That's beautiful. You don't need someone to tell you, but it is helpful to have somebody there to witness you discovering it. Agreed. And I have those people for myself too, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Well, Rabbi, before we close, I, I always end these podcasts with, uh, I ask my guests a question from uh, Zany, which is of course the app that sponsors What's Betwixt Us. And Zany offers a question each week so that teams can answer them and have conversations with each other and learn to trust each other. And so the question that I have selected for you is, what is something that you wear that feels like armor? Oh, Armor. Interesting. Oh my gosh, Lisa, I'm noticing in myself a strong reaction to the word armor because I am so friggin' heart centered. I'm like, I don't want armor. I just want more softness. <laughs> so 
The first thing that pops into my mind is a mala that I made. And for those of you who don't know, the mala is this beautiful beaded uh, piece of jewelry that has 88 beads on it and knots in between each one and is um, part of a prayer practice in some traditions. And I made this one myself. And there's actually a story behind it, which is a fun story because it's very Jessica. So I'll share it. So I had decided that I wanted to take this mala making workshop. And I go to the workshop and this lovely woman running it. And she puts all of the mala making kits on the floor in front of us. We're all kind of sitting in a circle. And she says, okay, if you're someone when you go to the ice cream shop, you ask to taste more than two flavors. I want you to go with your first instinct, <laughs> not like hem and haw about which one, you know, as someone who wants to taste at least six flavors when I go, <laughs> when I go for ice cream, I was like, yes, I heard that's me. So she says, okay, everyone can go and choose the, the right beads, bead kit for them. And I and everyone kind of like rushed to the center, right? To grab one, to like not be the last one. And I hung back a little bit and walked over slowly. And there was this one that just stood out to me. It was so beautiful. It was like a deep emerald green and pink stone. And the stone is called zeocyte. The stone is called zeocyte. And it's this very vibrant combination and I just grabbed it. I was like, this is speaking to me. And I opened up the little mala bag and it says the properties of each stone inside it there. And zeocyte is all about really like intuition and psychic abilities. And I thought to myself, ooh, this is really fun. And so I wear my mala all the time. And it's this beautiful reminder. It's a touchstone for me that we do exist in the physical world, but there's also this whole inner world. There's this whole unseen world that's our ability to tap into something deeper. And we each can experience that in different ways, you know, a sense of oneness, ways that we find divine winks along our trail of life, you know, coincidences, profound connection. And so I don't know if that's armor as much as like a sacred reminder, but that's what came in for me with that question. Oh, I love that. No, that's perfect. It's a, it's a talisman. It is a talisman. Yes. Beautiful. Yeah. I love it. Rabbi Marshall, where can people find out more about you and your offerings? Yeah. And Lisa, thank you. This was just such a beautiful and fun conversation. I, I love talking to you all the time. And when we get to record it, it's even better. Oh. Um, my website is a great way to find me. That's just uh, rabbijessicamarshall.com. Marshall with two L's. I'm also on Instagram at Rabbi JKM. I have a Facebook group called Divine Winks and Soul Whispers with Rabbi Jessica K. Marshall. So any of those places, but my website um, is just rabbijessicamarshall.com. And I really, really love connecting with folks. So if there's something that sparked something in you or touched you or you're, you want to push back against something I said, please, please be in touch. I really love connecting. Grappling is the the favorite Jewish pastime. I know always. Well. Yeah, um, yeah. But also, you have this incredible podcast. The I do, story. I do, I do. And 
Um, thank you, Lisa, for reminding me of my own podcast. <laughs> that was helpful. Yes, Sacred Stories. And Sacred Stories is being taken to the next level as we speak. So it's in this beautiful process of its own evolution at the moment. And it's going to be available in, in, on many, many more uh, platforms and places soon. Um, but you can find that on my website too. And it's, it's really um, exactly what we've been doing today. It's sharing stories about sacred moments in our lives that have that have deeply shaped us and the one and only Lisa Mandel was a guest a few months ago and was amazing so definitely check out that episode yeah it's a every every sacred stories call I hang up from I'm like I cannot believe I get to do this with my life (laughs) this is fantastic so you know podcasting is is just um it's just such a beautiful form of connection Agreed. Agreed. My favorite form. Yeah. Yeah. Rabbi Marshall or my friend, Jessica, thank you so much for joining us on the what's betwixt this podcast. You have been a joy as always. It was an honor. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to episode 22 of what's betwixt us stories of working while human to learn more about Rabbi Marshall's offerings. Please visit rabbijessicamarshall.com. You can also find her on Instagram at Rabbi JKM and listen to her rich and thoughtful podcast, Sacred Stories. What's Betwixt Us is powered by Zany, designed to build trust and authentic human connection in remote workspaces. More at zanie.app. Human first, everything else after. Human first, everything else after.